This is Darren Uper, and thank you for listening to Farm Focus. This episode is the second in our look at rural broadband in Pennsylvania. I was joined by Sasha Meinrath, a professor at Penn State University and a leading expert in telecommunications policy. We spoke about the difficulty of bringing broadband to rural communities. My name is Sasha Meinrath, and I'm the Palmer Chair in Telecommunications at Penn State University. And I also run something called XLab, which is a DC-based policy, tech policy think tank uh, that works sort of on kind of what are the very bleeding edge intersections of technology and policymaking. So it's everything from 5G to surveillance of protesters at this point in time. And, um, you know, my work really spans these, this gamut between sort of broadband connectivity, spectrum policy, tech policy more broadly, uh, civil liberties and privacy, all these different domains where technology and new technologies are intersecting with our daily lives, with different facets of our daily living. And I view this through the lens, if you will, of telecommunications, the networks that are being used for this. So you can think of it in terms of, you know, there's many different approaches to analyzing what the problems are, what the liberatory potential for these technologies are. And my focus has always been on what does it mean that instead of having face-to-face conversations in a, you know, a swank cafe over coffee, that we are now doing things like podcasts via Zoom. And these technologies then become these intermediaries, that we are, in essence, a computer-mediated society. Um, and that has profound implications for what it means to have civil liberties, human rights, civil rights, uh, and the various facets of, you know, what it means to live in these, these spaces. More recently with coronavirus and et cetera, you know, a lot of my focus has been on what does it mean to be in a society that's locked down that some people are able to continue in our professional and personal lives via these com- computer mediated connections telepresence, uh, et cetera, whereas others are not. What does it mean for families that their sons and daughters can't actually go to school? I put that in air quotes, which is probably not good for an audio broadcast, but you know, to go to school via the computer, well, that necessitates internet connectivity, and it necessitates, especially if you want to have the same experience uh, across the entire classroom, it, necessitates big connectivity. And that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist on the national scale, and it certainly doesn't exist uh, across Pennsylvania as well. And so my research is really kind of shining a spotlight on these multiple divides and pointing out that these problems are going to continue to metastasize. These are problems that will not just affect, but will affect in a larger measure the lives and livelihoods of folks that are on the wrong sides of these digital divides. I think that was probably one of the biggest things uh, for me with the COVID-19 crisis was hearing from people that 
could adjust their lives to a digital environment and those that simply could not. Yep. And I think as you and I have spoken before, there's a digital divide that's happening in rural Pennsylvania, but also in many other communities in the state. What can you tell me about that, about that digital divide that's going on in Pennsylvania? Well, our prior research uh, that was commissioned by the, the uh, Center for Rural PA, which is part of the Pennsylvania State Legislature, looked at what's happening with broadband speeds across Pennsylvania. And officially, we were being told that, you know, everything is fine here and that there is universal, universal, 100% broadband access throughout Pennsylvania. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize that that's wrong and easily verified as not correct. Uh, <clears throat> in our case, we verified it with 11 million broadband speed tests over the course of an entire year and since then have continued to collect over 10 million tests a year that document in essence that we have huge divides. Uh, and it's, it's mainly between rural and urban, but there's also huge divides inside our urban cores. There's huge divides between various demographics and constituencies. In essence, is a very heterogeneous connectivity state. Now, by shining a light on this, what we're able to then document uh, is that our, our solutions, the attempts to provide baseline connectivity, much less broadband connectivity, have failed to do so. And that here in 2020, we have a state where a lot of folks are on the wrong side of these digital divides. And what that means is, God, a tremendous number of things whether it's not having access to, you know, Amazon and Instacart or, you know, not being able to look up, you know, the correct spelling of something or, you know, any number of different resources, applications, services, cost savings that simply aren't available to folks that don't have broadband connectivity. So whether you're a, a farmer that wants to find out what the latest prices are before you say yes to, you know, selling at X amount or, you know, a school teacher trying to, you know, send home some homework or, a you know, a doctor that's trying to do a telehealth session with an elderly patient, all of these, all of these different facets of our lives more and more need connectivity. And what coronavirus and the lockdown and all of that made just more clear is that for those that don't have that, for businesses, for communities that don't have connectivity, this is going to be a epic disaster. It's an epic disaster, whether it's, you know, the personal mental states of individuals that are really remarkably disconnected from the world or the fact that you know, if you don't have an online presence as a business today, uh, <laughs> you are at a supreme competitive disadvantage. That may be an existential threat. You may not survive if you're, for example, a restaurant and can't take online orders. So these new realities, which are really just a distillation of prior realities, are really driving home the point that all of a sudden this 
this weird framing, this idea that connectivity matters and is a lens for understanding many different social ills. That connectivity is a force multiplier for great things, but also for some pretty evil, dastardly things. Uh, coronavirus has just made that all the more clear to us as a society. And your, the, the research that you mentioned, uh, uh, funded by the Center for Rural Pennsylvania, correct me if I'm wrong, basically found that no county in the state uh, meets at least 50% of its uh, advertised broadband speed. Do I have that right? Uh, so what we found in our initial analyses were that there were no counties where the median speed, that 50th percentile, met the FCC's definition to qualify as broadband. And the FCC has, you know, an official definition that says, you know, broadband is 25 megabits per second download speed, 3 megabits per second upload speed. Uh, and, you know, synchronicity strikes because what Zoom, for example, requires for an HD multi-party conference call is three megabits per second. So what this means is even if you had broadband connectivity in your house, if I wanted to do a Zoom call and my students, my, my uh, kids' teacher wanted to do a Zoom call at the same time, I wouldn't have the connectivity to do both. So I just have to decide, like, do I do the professional thing or the child education thing, but I cannot have both? And that's a terrible, a terrible trade-off. And that's assuming connectivity that isn't existent in large portions of the state. Now, since we did that original analysis, the speeds have come up modestly, and so Pennsylvania is doing slightly better, but it's still woefully inadequate. What we're seeing today is that broadband speeds are not adequate across large swaths of the state to actually engage in the kinds of everyday activities that coronavirus requires us to do. Are there, are there other states, other rural states that are doing a better job than us in prioritizing broadband or you know, making it more accessible or encouraging build out? Yeah, I mean, so nationally, Pennsylvania is doing okay. You know, we're in the top 40% <laughs> uh, na nationwide. Um, but along the East Coast, we're sort of like trailing all of our peers. So we're actually on the East Coast, we're surrounded by states that are doing better than us, which tells you something, right? I mean, and, and you know, so it depends on your reference group. Are we doing well? Well, we're doing better than, you know, Wyoming. But are we doing well vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, New England or, you know, the North and Central uh, Mid-Atlantic states? Uh, no, we're doing pretty poorly. And, nope. and really, I think this is because Pennsylvania has, you know, an East Coast megapolis on one side of the state and incredibly rural areas before you hit, you know, Pittsburgh. And so we have a little bit of Wyoming stuck in between uh, some fairly dense urban environments that have, you know, okay, pretty decent connectivity. Now, all of that then gets nested in the fact that the United States is trailing woefully behind other highly industrialized nations. So we pay more for worse service in fewer locations than a growing list of other countries. 
So what what needs to be done either nationally or even within the state of Pennsylvania to rectify the situation? Yeah, I mean, the answer is very simple, which is that we need to make massive broadband investments. And we need to view this as the essential, the critical resource, the critical infrastructure that it actually is and start treating it like things like uh, roads, electricity, water, public education, you know, things that we understand are necessities if we're going to live in a civil society. And we're amidst this moment in time where we're sort of transitioning to appreciating that this is a critical resource. That we, and once we make that transition, then it kind of necessitates that we do things like have universal service mandates, right? In the ways that we have with public education, electricity, even telephones, right? That universal service fund line item tax that we used to see in our phone bills is there in order to ensure that all Americans actually have access to telephone services. And we haven't done that with broadband. So I was just gonna ask, so there is no tax or anything along those lines comparable that is funding broadband, much as like the comparison you just made to the universal service telephone. Well, there, there are various mechanisms, tax-like structures and subsidies to telcos, but not the mandate, which is to say they're getting a lot of money, money without the mandatory universal service component. And what that means is like, yeah, we're spending huge amounts of money as a country to overbuild the same most highly profitable areas with upgrades while ignoring areas that even when they will turn a profit will return a lower profit. So a lot of rural America, it is false to declare that you cannot make a sustainable business model. You absolutely can. Now you might not make as high a profit margin, but the reason why these telcos have spent millions of dollars, millions of dollars gleaned from overcharging customers for our substandard service uh, on preventing things like co-ops, municipalities, other businesses from entering these markets is because they understand that there's a lot of profit to be made. They just don't want the competition. And in essence, what they've done is create this collateral damage, which is rural constituents and communities. They're just the collateral damage that's acceptable to these companies and the politicians that support these barriers to entry. That has to go too. We have that in Pennsylvania. We have laws on the books that make it harder to provide universal service. We proactively made it more difficult to bridge the digital divide. Uh, and that's a terrible idea if you view this as an essential service. Are there models out there that are working? Like, um, I, you know, recall reading in Huntington County that a co-op has formed to yeah. deliver service like that. Is, is that part of the solution? Absolutely. Absolutely. And frankly, you know, AT&T and Comcast are part of the solution too, right? That 
you know, I am in many ways business model neutral, which is to say I want a rich, diverse, heterogeneous ecosystem of different business models all playing out in this broadband space, all vying to provide the best service at the low, lowest price. And, you know, in that regard, you can say I'm a, I'm a more honest free marketeer than a lot of the so-called free marketeers that are trying to limit competition, right? And that's really what this comes down to. There's not going to be one business model that's going to fit every community, every constituent need, every topology, et cetera. There's going to be a variety. And, you know, what I'm saying is that what we already realized in the telephone space, in the electrical space, like the ways that we got to you know, near universal service in both those domains is with heterogeneous business models. That's why we have electrical co-ops and you know, a variety of different business models in these domains. Somehow we took what we already have established as work, right? We've already figured out like this is how we got to universal service in electricity, in telephony, and we're like, and we're going to ignore that successful history. And that's, that's a crying shame. I, I don't understand how anyone can look at the history of telecommunications, electricity, roads for that matter, and not understand, you know what? There's a reason why we have county roads. Sometimes the county is the best person, entity to build and maintain that infrastructure. And we just don't do that with broadband. Fair point. So, so we treat broadband almost as a luxury instead of a necessity delivered to the home the same way that we do telephone, electrical, water, sewer, and those types of things. That's right. And then we ignore the detrimental impacts that these proactive policies are causing to folks that are already disadvantaged, right? It's not just that you don't have access to these resources. It's that the divide between those that have access to these resources and those that don't is growing. So here we are in a post-coronavirus world where everything is shut down and where we're told, look, death and taxes, near universal, everyone's gotta go through them. <laughs> And, you know, what's our solution to people that can't print out, you know, tax forms at home? Well, you go to the library and you pick up a physical, oh, the library's closed. So how do you just do something as simple as get your tax forms? And these are questions that, in essence, shouldn't even have to be asked because we know that these problems have been here. We've simply refused to acknowledge them until now we're at a crisis point. Do you think this crisis uh, is going to be helpful in causing people to want to bridge that digital divide? So maybe now is the time to solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely creating increased pressure to solve these problems. Now, I happen to be both a hopeless optimist. I think we will solve these problems and also quite realistic at the resiliency of Washington, D.C. and Harrisburg to perseverate. 
which is to say to talk about the need to do something long enough that they run out the shot clock. In essence, it bleeds off momentum and pressure to affect meaningful intervention. And I, you know, I've been doing this now for over 20 years. So for 20 years, we've been talking about, oh, this is a problem. And it, it reminds me of that scene in Monty Python, where you've got like the, you know, the lead folks yelling. They're sort of sitting in this giant field screaming about how like, oh, you know, the enemies are coming. And it's like this long period of them being like, ah, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And then all of a sudden they get there and they stab them and, you know, you're like, oh my God, where did that come from? Right? Like, that's this. We're not caught up in an avalanche. We've been run over by a very slow moving glacier. And we've sat here being like, oh no, the glacier is coming for 20 years. And will DC, will Harrisburg, will folks move now that we're at the boiling point? I sure hope so. I'm certainly working to help make that easier. And, you know, <laughs> it's an open question whether we actually will get her done, whether we will actually make major public investments in a universal service mandate, whether we will hold incumbents to account for achieving universal affordable connectivity i'd like to i'd like to be optimistic but i guess i'm also you know you can put me in the in the realistic category now did i forget to ask you anything anything you want to add on this on this topic yeah so pennsylvania is a real odd duck because pennsylvania passed something called chapter 30 which is where we granted huge monetary benefits, tax subsidies, money, hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer cash to incumbents in return for universal broadband service. And the incumbents pocketed that cash, pocketed money from your and my bank accounts, and then didn't deliver. So, Pennsylvania, unlike most places, already paid once for universal service we haven't received. And what's weird is this is all in public documents. You can read the testimony and et cetera. You can read the testimony of Verizon in December of 2015 declaring universal broadband service has been achieved. Which is mind boggling because I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like this is very easily verified to be incorrect. This is, to me, it feels like a, akin to like a contractual arrangement that one side simply didn't deliver what you paid for. Right. So I think that is well worth more investigation, that this in fact might not need to cost us more money in Pennsylvania if we're willing to hold folks, companies to account say, hey, that thing we paid you for, you actually have to deliver. Interesting points. <laughs> Very. So, something so, so simple is being able to connect to the internet, and yet there is so much complexity woven in that web. 
Yeah, and we've seen a lot of analyses of what the opportunity cost is. That, in essence, what does it cost a you know a family in terms of increased prices and inefficiencies to not be online? And you know, it spans depending on whose analysis you're looking at, but it's somewhere around one to three thousand dollars a year. Hmm. So multiply that up and you realize like the opportunity cost to Pennsylvania is in the billions of dollars over the last decade. That our failure to make these investments is actually costing us a heck of a lot more than it would have cost us to just build out universal fiber connectivity to every house. And as coronavirus is making clear, this is now an issue of literal life and death. Very true. That the, the lack of connectivity creates not just individual and household level problems, but for folks that are on the wrong side of being now able to apply for jobs in this dreadful new economy, for folks that, whose businesses have imploded, like you want to know what's going to throw more fire onto the opioid epidemic and domestic violence and all of the kind of attendant, you know, problems of disaffection and, and alienation. This is going to make things a hell of a lot worse. Yeah, you raise good points. So that's where we are today. It's, it's you know, we're now conducting a study looking at broadband pricing between urban and rural Pennsylvania. In essence, this year, we're adding into the mix, not just the speed differentials, but asking the question, are there pricing differentials as well? And that report will come out probably in July, 2020. Uh, is, it, is it too soon to ask if you have def found that there are price differentials? Uh, so there are definitely pricing differentials and we're looking into what accounts for those right now as we speak. Uh, Great. It's a very complicated data set, so I don't want to get ahead of the data, but I can say definitively like, yes, <laughs> there are differentials and now we need to figure out what these mean. And uh, yeah, my team is working on that as we speak. Great. Well, listen, I thank you so much for your, for your time. I really appreciated uh, the, the insight and all that. Wonderful. My pleasure. Rural broadband is a leading issue of our organization because it cuts across every fabric of life for people living in rural communities. As an organization that is focused on creating opportunities in those areas, Farm Bureau is continuing to advocate at the state and federal level for broadband investments. Thanks for listening.